I hope you will join me this week in, when you go home, reopening that gospel passage, rereading it, and reflecting on it this week. It's Mark 10, 35 to 45. It's cited in the bulletin, or you can click it open via our social media. This is a section of the gospel that we've been hearing from for many weeks, from the summer until now. It's a part of the gospel of Mark in which Jesus is journeying with his closest disciples toward Jerusalem. When he enters into Jerusalem, which begins in chapter 11, Jesus will enter into his passion, his death, and his resurrection, the way through which he ultimately brings salvation to this world. Who Jesus is will be fully revealed in his passion, death, and resurrection. So as he's journeying toward Jerusalem with his disciples, he starts telling them much more about who he really is, what kind of a Messiah he really is, and he also starts telling them much more directly what the absolute requirements are if they're going to live as his disciples. We've talked about this many times. They can do whatever they want with their lives, but if they are truly going to be his followers, he starts telling them there are absolute conditions on living as my disciple. There's an emphasis throughout this whole section of the gospel on the limitations of these disciples. They consistently do not understand what Jesus is telling them. They won't, in many cases, accept what he's telling them. I am confident that those first disciples passed on and so emphasized their limitations as a gift to us. I also believe, obviously, the Scripture is inspired by the Spirit of God. I'm confident that the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize in their limitations our limitations, because we all have the same limitations, and to hopefully grow through these as disciples of Jesus. So if you can envision your life, which I hope you can, as a journey with Jesus toward eternal salvation, and if you are trying to grow as his follower, please don't be anything other than honest about how you can relate to the disciples in the gospel's limitations, hopefully as a means for spiritual growth. So I will give you four big limitations that they have in the passage we just heard, and I hope you can really relate to these. So limitation number one, for the third and final time in this section of the gospel, in the verses right before what we just heard, verses 32 through 34, Jesus tells his disciples what is going to happen to him when they enter Jerusalem. It's his most explicit of these three passion predictions. He says that he is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes who will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit upon him, scourge him, and put him to death. But after three days, he will rise. So he's direct about his passion, death, and resurrection that are to come. Remember, we heard these earlier the last several Sundays. First time he gives this passion prediction, Peter rebukes him, and he rebukes Peter. Second passion prediction, the scripture writer says they're afraid to ask any questions. This third time, with the most explicit explanation of what's to come, what do they say in verse 35? Absolutely nothing. They don't say a single word. He tells them about his passion, and they don't say a single word. So we know that they're afraid. We know that they don't want Jesus to suffer that way. 
we know they're probably afraid that it might happen to them as well because they're with Jesus. We've talked about previously, there's absolutely no evidence that our Jewish ancestors expected a Messiah who would suffer. You and I just heard that first reading from Isaiah. It's a, a, a word of God five, six, six centuries before Christ predicting a suffering Messiah, but there's no evidence anyone got that. We can see it when we look back as Christians. And then also, what about rising from the dead? If he's killed, how is he possibly going to rise from the dead? So I can get why they are unwilling to talk about this passion. The older I get and the more I spend with that passage, they figure this out pretty soon afterwards. They witness this passion, death, and resurrection. So why is there so much emphasis on their unwillingness to enter into it? My strong guess is because it's about love. It's because later, when those events take place, they witness in Jesus's passion and death that the fullness of love is completely sacrificial, outpouring, merciful, giving, forgiving for the worst people on the planet. That's what love turns out to be. And it's not very attractive a lot of the time. I don't want to live the passion of living that love with my spouse, whom I can't stand right now. By the way, recently someone said, you seem to have a lot of problems with your wife. I'm not married. I'm not talking about my personal spouse. He said, like, it's, is this from your past or is this, the, really, you're going through a lot. I do not want to live that passion with people I can't stand in this community. I don't want to live the passion of Jesus' true love in this neighborhood a lot of the time. I am unwilling to accept that that's really the fullness of love. So think about that this week, how right now in your life, in the challenges of living the truth that you know Jesus calls you to live in your moral decisions, how are you not willing right now to accept the passion of living his love? Number two, limitation number two. In verse 35, what does occur is James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, with Peter, they're kind of the inner circle of Jesus' closest followers. Father's name is Zebedee. They go, James and John, to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What an obnoxious question. Would you ever buy that with your kid? Dad, I want you to do whatever I ask you to do. You'd say, get out of here. Jesus doesn't fall for this. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They say, in your glory, allow one of us to be seated at your right hand and the other to be seated at your left hand. They're probably thinking about what Jesus has taught about an eternal banquet, about his someday coming again in glory. They want to be in the two most important positions on either side of Jesus. So they live in a very hierarchical culture. They live in a Jewish culture at the time that has a lot of emphasis on position and authority and status. So on one level, this is understandable, but they are very self-centered at this point. This is the only point in the gospel where James and John do something together without Peter. Ooh, interesting. 
they don't want Peter around because they're only, I think, they're only two petition, positions available. They, you know, Matthew, who writes a later version of this, appears to be so offended by the obnoxiousness of this question that he puts it into the mouth of the mother of James and John. He blames it on them. So these guys are very self-centered. Right at the time Jesus tells them about his passion, they're thinking about themselves. I encourage you this week to be honest. Right now, how do you recognize that you, unbelievably enough, are self-centered? Don't, be, don't beat yourself up about this, but what are significant ways that you recognize as a Christian you are self-centered? And if you come away with no list, if you come away with the conclusion, I am utterly self-centered, tell that to the people who live with you. I think they may have a different version. How are you self-centered? So, limitation number three. Jesus hears this, he actually says it's not for him to assign these positions, presumably it's for God the Father. But he says to them, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized in the baptism with which I'm being baptized? He's talking about his passion and his death. Can you actually live the same kind of passion that I am going to live? And they say right away, we can for 100 points. When Jesus is arrested, before his passion even really gets going, what do those two do? They run away. They leave him and they flee, Mark 14, 50. These two guys have an exaggerated sense of the, their strength in following Jesus. They very much underestimate their weakness in following Jesus. That's just the fact. I hope that you can potentially recognize that this week. How do you share that kind of limitation? Think about Lent, for example. Most of us at the beginning of Lent have resolutions of things that we believe we can do to live more pure Christian lives. And it's very typical that about two weeks later, we're bashing our heads against the wall because we really can't do what we think we should be able to do. How have you recently known a teaching of Jesus and said, I can do this, I can really live this, but it turns out that you don't have the strength. That's just reality. How do you recognize that limitation in your life? Fourth and final limitation. When the other 10 disciples hear about this, they say, oh, these guys are so limited. Oh, we love them. Oh, don't worry, they're limited. No, they become indignant. When the other 10 hear that James and John want the two best positions, they become indignant. I think based upon what we heard a few weeks ago about their discussing who among them is the greatest, I think they want those positions. I think they probably don't want James and John to have them. They think that they, or at least some of them, should have those most important positions. They are, I think, doing what Jesus says Gentiles do lording their rule over one another, making their authority over one another inappropriately felt. So, same pattern. This week, please be honest about how do you currently behave that way? In your marriage, in your family, in school, at the RMV, in your business, how do you make your authority 
or your supposed authority over other people felt. And this is so important in our culture, in our culture where I don't just disagree with Waldy, where I point out how wrong he is, how right I am, how stupid he is, and I try to cancel him because I just disagree with him about a sports team. I must put you down because I am so much more important over you than you, and I will cancel you to show you my authority. We have to be honest about this. So those four limitations. How does Jesus react to those disciples with those limitations? He completely loves them. They are works in progress. They're limited human beings. He pulls them together and he tells them what to do with their limitations. So this is the final thing I invite you to enter into. Just this week, hear Jesus tell you directly what he tells them directly. He tells them, if you're going to be my disciples, you are going to be different from other people, and you're going to be different from the way you are now. You're going to grow. The one among you, whoever among you wishes to be great, will be your servant. We heard this a few weeks ago. If you want to be great as a disciple of Jesus, you will serve other people by living his love with them. You'll recognize people's needs, you'll enter into those needs, and you will give. You will be merciful and compassionate and giving and forgiving with other people. You'll serve him in other people. Number two, whoever among you, whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. Think about this. In the horror of slavery, there's this ridiculous idea that a slave belongs to one human being. A slave belongs to one person. If you wish to be first as my disciple, you will be the slave of all. You'll belong to everyone. You will live that love with everybody, not just your family, not just this community, not just people you like, but the really nasty people that you otherwise hate. You'll make the choice to live my love more and more with everyone. And then third, Jesus explains why. Because the Son of Man, the title he uses exclusively for himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Greek word many can be a lot or it can mean all. I think it's in the sense of all. Jesus comes to this world to ransom us, to give his life, to get us back from sin, to get us back from death. He pours out his entire life to ransom me from sin and death. Because I love him, I will choose to try to grow as a servant and a slave of all. This isn't a principle, it's a person. He gave his entire life for me. He completely loves me. I love him. And so that's my motivation for getting past these limitations or growing through these limitations to be his servant, his slave, living his love with others. Interesting and concluding. Those disciples all grow through those limitations. I presume those limitations continue to be challenges, but they grow through them by doing what he tells them to do, by being motivated 
by returning his love, doing what he says to do. Just a few years later, James' life is taken. He's executed because he chooses to live as Jesus' disciple. Most of his closest disciples, as far as we know, end up living love so powerfully that they give up their lives for the kingdom the same way. So you and I, if we're honest about these limitations, and if we do what he tells us to do, we should experience real growth in him in salvation. So get going. Thank you for listening. To learn more and to get involved, go to stpatrickparish.com.